All right. So this is a tricky passage. And, you know, I was thinking, I haven't, I haven't uh, taught on this in years. And so I was trying to psych myself into it. I haven't taught on this. I was like, it's probably been like 10 years since I've taught on this passage. And a lot of me has changed since then. Um, and, uh, and so I started trying to get myself to look forward to it. But it's still just a, a messy part in the Bible. And the Bible is messy. The Bible's NC-17. It's not um, felt bored with animals on an ark, <laughs> right? It's, there are these real stories that people either are telling that it's historical or they're telling to have a lesson learned or whatever it may be, but there's still people in space and time telling these stories for a particular reason. And so we have this story of, of Abraham and his son Isaac and, and him being asked to uh, sacrifice his son. So uh, I want to I take some time with that today to try to unpack and really kind of dismantle a bomb. And, um, but before I do, I'm going to drink water. Before I do, I just want to kind of talk for a minute about, I know for me, what it was like growing up hearing God's voice and trying to discern what God was saying. I remember going into high school, and um, I was really committing myself to this uh, whole thing of being a really committed Christian. You know, and ultimately, all of us, you know, if there's a, if there's a tricycle of experience, tradition, and Scripture, and I ask you what the front wheel is, we all want to say that maybe Scripture's the front wheel that guides our life, but the truth of the matter is it's experience. You don't get a say-so in where you came from, and who raised you, and what you were exposed to, and then what you came to believe about the world because of that. It's just what happens. And so that said, uh, you know, I came from a really traditional uh, and fundamental uh, interaction around the Bible. And, um, and so that infused and informed my way of thinking about God and talking about God. And I remember feeling like I was really hearing God speak to me that I needed to, in my freshman year in high school, my freshman year in high school, make my way around to all the seniors' lockers and put tracks in their locker. So I would, you know, tracks, I would take these tracks and that tell you how you're going to hell and then how to avoid that and make better decisions for your life. And then I would shove that into, like, especially the baseball players that I, because I was in the baseball team, I would just put that in their locker. And then there was one time this guy comes up to me, and he's like one of the guys you don't mess with in school. He's like, Robin, did you put this in my locker? And I'm like, yeah, man. And he goes, he looked at me. I was like, well, I just don't want you to go to hell. And I was so convinced that God had told me to do that. And maybe God did, maybe God didn't. But looking back, I go, I don't know if that's something that I would really encourage. <laughs> like you're kind of setting yourself up for a lot of things. And I'm like, would God set me up to do that? And and. I, the truth of the matter is I, I may never really know. I know at that time that's what I felt like I was hearing. If I heard God say to my in, in my head now, go put tracks in all the books at whatever leftover bookshops there are, I would say no to that voice. I might say, you know, get behind me, Satan. I don't really know what I'd say exactly, but I would say, like, no, that's not it. And my point is this. Like, over time, our views and understanding of how we hear God changes. So just setting that up there for a second. Now, here we are with Abraham, and it's important that we let Abraham be a person of his time. So if he's a historical person, we're talking 4,000 years ago, give or take. Well, a lot's different in 4,000 years. Um, Abraham, we know, came from the land of Ur, which would be modern-day south, uh, southwest Iraq. Um, and we know that—I'm sorry, the southeast Iraq. 
uh, we know that every region in the world had their local deities, and they had these very intentional, purposeful ways to interact with these deities. Uh, and we know that in the midst of Abraham being a religious man in his area, somehow, some way, God appeared on the scene to him, Yahweh did, and, um, and then convinced Abraham, or Abram at that time, to like pack everything up and go on a journey. And it really is interesting when you think about the journey that Abraham went on, because everything from his views of God changed to his name literally changed, uh, to by the end of the, his story, he started off one person, ended up another person. And, uh, and I think that's kind of how it goes with God. We go on these journeys, and God, uh, there's more revelation of who God is. And, and it's important to keep in mind that, uh, you know, Abraham had a certain lens to consider God when he left Ur. And that was radically different in so many ways than when he ended up uh, in the land that he did at the end of the story. So that's one thing to consider. The other thing I think is really consider is that uh, transactional relationships were the norm at this time in history. And what I mean by that is, you know, there, if, if I wanted to make a deal with you, what we would do transactionally is we would have to use blood because blood was the only thing that really communicated that this is serious at this time because people were very nomadic and, and uh you didn't really know like what their background was or what they really believed in, but everybody believed in blood, that blood like was something to catch your attention. So it was very common if you wanted to make a, um, an agreement about, I don't know, maybe you know, our kids are going to marry or we're going to make this deal with our land and animals or whatever it may be, or a service that you're going to provide. It was very common to cut up animals and then walk in the middle of the blood of these animals. And as you're walking in the blood, you know, chanting things like, if I don't fulfill my end of the bargain, then the blood I'm walking in will be my blood one day, right? You're like, wow, like, we don't do that today. <laughs> and, um, and as well, the, because ancient Near Eastern people believed that sacrifices were so important that they upped the ante when it came to their local gods. And so therefore... Their local gods uh, had to have some kind of sacrifice, some kind of blood, to recognize that this person is serious about filling the blank of the god's name. And a very common practice all throughout space and time in the ancient Near East, 4,000 years ago, was to sacrifice your firstborn child. As archaic and horrible as that sounds, to totally agree with, we had the privilege to look back on that as 21st century people with all the things we know, with all the things we've experienced, and to go, man, that's really off. How could they ever? Well, we weren't living then. We don't know. Um, the truth of the matter is there are people that are going to look back on us one day, 100 years from now, 200 years from now, 500 years from now, 1,000 years from now, and go, how could they ever have approved systemic racism? Like, there's always going to be something that we're having to evolve with in our humanity uh, that people look back on. And, and by the way, this idea of, of, well, that they'll look back on and they'll critique. And, and, and so to add to that, you know, transactional relationships are, are alive and well today, as they've, as just as they've ever been. Um, they, we have transactional relationships around, you know, with banks. Uh, we have it around with our jobs. There's an understanding that if I do this, I'll get paid. We have it in our marriages. If I if I 
you know, do these things here, you'll do these things here, is that we have a very quid pro quo way of going about relationships. That's always been in the water. Uh, we don't we don't have to use sacrifices of animals or our children, but we will sacrifice our own health, um, our own um, um, space with one another. Uh, we'll sacrifice ourselves financially um, for the sake of uh, our kids or our spouses or whoever else. It's very common for us to think in terms of still transactional relationships and to get really upset then and to get a resentment when people don't give us back what we feel like we've given them. Very normal to this day. Uh, we just don't have the, the same means in which we're using to, to make the transition. And if you think about it, even in our faith, yes, there's a belief that there is grace and grace alone that, that, that propels us at the same time. Uh, maybe you grew up in this atmosphere that if you didn't spend enough time with God in the Bible and something bad happened in your day, you thought, well, I deserved it. Or if you didn't show up to church, you're going to be in trouble, which I'm so curious with what the mindset of people are going to be when this pandemic in a year or however long it takes for us to come back to normalcy down the road, what churches will look like. Because people are going, oh, I literally don't have to be at the church. And like, I didn't like burn up. <laughs> like God didn't get me. He didn't strike me down. Like things are okay. Like we live off this mindset of, of transactional relationships. So Abraham is no different. And Abraham, to the best of his ability, is trying to hear from God. And of course, because where he came from, he's going to be thinking like, maybe this is God's voice, or if God were to speak, like, you got to almost imagine, because sacrificing children was such a normal thing, I don't mean like it happened regularly, but I'm saying it was such a normal way to think about, at some point in time, the gods could ask you for the ultimate sacrifice to show your faithfulness. And so... When they ask you for your child, you have to give it. Well, you have to think that Abraham, who hasn't had a, a child up until the point of being 100 years old, has waited this whole time. It's got to be in the back of his mind. Could this God ask me for my only child? And when he does, I'd be willing to say yes. Well, you mix all that into a bag, shake it up, and then humans trying their best to hear from God. And there's a good chance that Abraham felt like and thought that that's what God was saying to him. The reason why I say it that way is because um, we know that God doesn't change, but humans do. We believe that God doesn't change. We believe that, that God has always, for example, God has always been for freedom and self-care and recognizing the dignity of other human beings. Well, but racism was used throughout the Bible, the Old Testament, and therefore it was because of that, um, our forefathers, when they came to this country, believed then, well, there was precedent for these things. Well, do we believe that God just was racist and then decided not to be racist? No. I think God is always loving, good, and faithful. I think it's the humans as the means of translating God that we have the flaws in. So perhaps God was never condoning racism in the Old Testament. Perhaps they were just humans because of where they came from that were translating God into space and time, and that's what they came up with. I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm not the end-all, be-all in this authority, um, and at the same time, I'm pretty sure I'm not off on that one. That ultimately, that means that we have a God who could be changing, and that's scarier to think than humans who are getting it wrong.
You follow me? So that said, we have this guy, Abraham, who believes that he's, he's hearing from God that he is to take his son and sacrifice him. And I think we can say, sitting on this side, that that isn't something that God would ask. And yet, Abraham has to go through this transition himself. He has to come to greater understanding of who God is. And um, there was one theologian, uh, um, I wrote it down here, I'm trying to remember his name. I can't remember the theologian's name, and, I'll, and he's one of my favorites. Uh, oh, Walter Brueggemann. How could I forget this with Walter Brueggemann? And Walter Brueggemann, he talks about how um, that as this new God appears on the scene to Abraham, and then for the next few thousand years, as people try to now get in touch with this, who this God is, who is so radically different, they find. They all believed at first, this God is going to be like the other gods, but maybe he'll provide me some better options along the way. But then this God ends up being radically different from any other God that they ever experienced. And so they're wrapping their minds constantly. Their views of God are evolving along the way. Like they'll do something and God's like, no, we don't do it that way anymore. And they'll do something and God's like, no, we don't do it that way anymore. Like this is what I now ask. And this is what it will mean when we interact these ways together because it'll be a healthy, a healthy relationship or at least a healthy relationship. And Brueggemann says that there are five things that Israel came in touch with about the character of God that was so unique and different from where they came from before. And these five things is that through their experiences, more and more, how they understand God grows into that God is merciful, God is gracious, God is faithful, God is forgiving, and God is steadfast in love. I'm saying again, that God is merciful, that God is gracious, that God is faithful, God is forgiving, and God is steadfast in love. That these are what their views were ultimately trying to evolve into over time. They may have started with gods that were more contrite and gods that were heavy on the transactions of blood for blood, but as we even read the Old Testament, we see an evolution in the, in the, like the interaction and thinking. Like at first, we have Leviticus where it's all cool to make sacrifices, and then we got God speaking through David and other prophets like, I don't want your sacrifices. I just use that to try to, to like help you because you're human, because you're limited. But I never was interested in the sacrifices. I'm interested in the heart. And then we have Jesus, God in the flesh, shows up, and you can see him just like doing away with all these old ways of thinking. And he's like, if you don't get that people matter in these ways, that God is way more inclusive than you are, God is way more loving than you are, God is way more forgiving than you are, then you're not serving God. You're serving a God of where you came from. You're serving a God of what was handed to you. And now we start getting into the whole deconstruction, reconstruction talks we've had before as a church. All of us were handed very certain particular views about who God is and who God was and who God is meant to be in our lives. And that we eventually hit cognitive dissonance when we start living our own lives and going, but that doesn't line up. Like, that's not very loving. How did I get to that view? Well, this theology or this doctrine or whatever else. And then we're like, well, can I actually let that thing go? And if you were a person in the Old Testament, what they would say is, well, yes. If it doesn't line up to God being merciful, gracious, faithful, forgiving, and steadfast in love, if you can't, like, parse that out in this view you're having right now, then that view you're having right now, although God was stamped onto it growing up, it's not God. It's toxic. 
And notice I'm not defining for you the exact views you have to have. That's not my job. I know people think that is the pastor. That's everybody's job to do their own work about where they're coming to and their relationship with God. And I will say this, though. If the things that we're buying into do not pass through the test of merciful, being more merciful, more gracious, more faithful, more forgiving, and more steadfast in love, then it is not God. Now, here's why I think this is interesting with Abraham. Abraham is on to something in the passage. Like we notice, like at times he's saying, they ask him like, like he's cutting up the wood and he goes, we're going to, we will come back. We're going to worship. Like we are going to come back. When they're hiking up the mountain and Isaac's like putting two to two together, like this ain't going to work out well for me. And he goes, well, what are we going to do for the sacrifice? And Abraham says, like the Lord will provide. Abraham realizes something at some point in time of this journey Although he's woken up with this thing that he needs to take his son to sacrifice on the mountain, he knows that ultimately, though, the God he's serving would never ask him to do that. Like he's going through his own cognitive dissonance of sorts, and he's choosing to believe in the better aspects than what were handed to him. And I believe that's the work that we must do, that we have to go, even though I think that this was handed to me, I've got to do the work now to buy into okay, this is, I don't think God is that way. I think God is this way. I think God is this loving. And by the way, Jesus gives us permission to, right? It's not me saying it. So if we fast forward or we're still rewinding to Matthew chapter six and seven, we have the setting of the Sermon on the Mount. And at the beginning of chapter six, Jesus gives uh, the famous Lord's Prayer and like father language, right? This is intimate. And when he gets to chapter 7, which he doesn't get to chapter 7, when he gets to the teaching that we call chapter 7, he has this part at verse 9 where he says, hey, you need to be really needy with God. So I'm going to say to you, ask, seek, and knock until you get what you're looking for. Ask, seek, and knock. Like whatever God you've been handed, you don't believe you can do that. You don't believe that you can be that needy with God, that vulnerable with God. What I'm saying to you is, if you aren't being that needy and vulnerable with God, then whatever you have is not the God that I'm talking about. And then he, he gives them this way of understanding it. He says, uh, if any of you, he goes, it's like, raise a hand. Any of, any of you got kids? You know, you see some people, I got kids, right? And uh, he goes, well, if one of your kids asks for bread, do you give them a stone? And they're like, no. He goes, well, if one of your kids asks for fish, do you give them a snake? And they're like, no. Like, who is this guy? And he goes, well, if you who are capable of evil and atrocious things would not do that to your children but be good and loving to them and their neediness, how much more in your Father in heaven? And at that moment, in one fell swoop, Jesus would have failed every seminary in America. Because what Jesus is saying is you don't start with God to get to man. You don't start with the character of God of what you have to, well, this must be God here, and so i got to conform myself to that. He's saying, look inside yourselves on your best day, and if you wouldn't be, if that isn't loving, if that isn't being gracious, if that isn't being kind, if that isn't being humane, then you need to really, really consider some things because you're God in heaven. Like if you're going to, however you would treat your child on your best day is how God is going to treat you times a thousand, times infinity. He's saying like start with your best days of love and then build up towards God. Don't start with maybe something handed you about God and then say, well, that must control me here. You have to wonder if people would have done the work 
if we ever would have done the work around racism, systemic racism, the question for a person to ask themselves is, would I want to be under somebody else's rule and to be treated harshly and to be abused at a whim? Would I want that? Oh, no, I wouldn't want that. Oh, well, then why do I do that to other people? Well, because there was a precedent handed to them that they weren't willing to question. And because they weren't willing to question those precedents handed to them theologically, it then shaped how they were going to keep acting for hundreds of years. And if people who are white, and now I'm going to start preaching for a minute, if people who are white were willing to ask, like, well, would I want to be, you know, profiled on a regular basis uh, if I have a hoodie on or when I go to the bank and I'm not getting, like, the loan or the good interest rate or I'm getting turned down for, like, the house that I could afford or, and the list goes on and on, would I want that? No, I wouldn't want that. Oh, well, then why do I support a system that keeps doing that to other people? Like, we, we don't, if we'll do our own work, we might get to the work of, like, here and now, and that is, like, if it's not more merciful and gracious and forgiving and faithful and loving, then it's not from God. Jesus, 2,000 years ago, what makes him so unique is not his... Uh, like, you know, there's a good chance, I'm thinking, that maybe he still thought the world was flat. I know that we don't want to think that, you know, but a man in the ancient Near East, maybe he did. <laughs> Who knows? Oh, he's God, he can't. Okay. But maybe he could. Maybe maybe he. there were really limited views he had about math and, and science and whatever else. But the thing that, because we've always, we've always succeeded and, and gone, we've, we've just gone up in the graph when it comes to math and science and, and whatnot. But when it comes to spiking the consciousness of a human person in space and time, Jesus spiked the map. And ever since his life, we've been trying to catch up to just his ability to love and be inclusive and thoughtful and accepting. Like the two times he hands out gold stars for greatest faith in all of Israel and Palestine were to people who weren't Jewish. <laughs> they were like pagan. They were like Roman. He is really good with bringing people in and being more loving and more thoughtful. And what I, would, what I would say is that to this day, we're still trying to catch up to him. Nobody's been able to catch up to him since. He's still the benchmark for what does it mean to be loving and accepting uh, and faithful and kind and good. And what I want to say, what I want us to consider as a church, I, I believe that a lot of us... Um, a lot of us, I think, were raised to have very limited views about who God is and how loving God is. And I think that those limiting views actually is what binds us up a lot of times to actually have more of a relationship with God. That because we were handed something that was maybe toxic or unhelpful or it's just stunting, we're afraid of letting that go. And what I want to say to you is Abraham was willing to let some things go. Jesus encouraged us to let some things go. I think it's actually appropriate in our reconstruction of our faith to let some things go. And listen, if it needs to come back to you one day, it will. Maybe it'll come back to you in a more healthy form. Maybe there's views of, I don't know, maybe there's something like election. That's a, that's a popular one that you're like, man, that, I don't know if that works for me. Or maybe there's views of, of choosing to come to faith on my own that were toxic to you. There's toxicity on both sides of, of the spectrum there. And what I'm saying is whatever it is that's been toxic for you, there's precedent in Scripture 
to give yourself permission to let that go if it means that you're not getting a more loving, faithful, kind, merciful God. That ultimately, those are the defining factors of who God is supposed to be to us, because that's the only way, only until we as humans get to experience true acceptance and true love and true benevolence, this altruistic, until then, we are always going to stay in transactional relationships with God. And those transactional relationships, uh, quid pro quo doesn't work well with God. Because at some point in time, you get burned out. So I'd encourage you with that for your own life. I'd encourage you as well to maybe do some work around what are views that were handed to you that have allowed you to stay maybe, uh, maybe judgmental towards people, maybe to be racist, to be able to profile another person. Like, uh, you know, f- especially as Southerners, we have to admit this, if we're m- being in Memphis, and I know everybody's from the South here, but you're living in the South. Um, the, uh, the, the history, the hatred, uh, I, mean, I mean, I'm from Mississippi, just a few miles that way south of here, there's still this discussion around, do we keep a Confederate flag up or not because of heritage? You're like, it's crazy. It's in the water, and it's always been approved by the Bible. And that's the world so many people grew up in. Well, that means there's probably a good chance I have some pretty, you know, racist views that are funded and promoted by where I came from religiously. And if it does not line up to being more loving and gracious and merciful and kind and steadfast in love, then that means it, it's probably not God's voice. Just because you felt like you're supposed to put a track in a locker doesn't mean maybe you're supposed to put the track in the locker. See, I tied it full circle. So that's what I wanted to give you all to be willing to wrestle with. And, uh, and I hope that uh, as we continue to journey on these things together, we find a God who is more uh, gracious and loving, even as we're going up a mountain to do hard things like Abraham did, which Abraham got. So we're, uh, we have actually some questions for an adult track, and then uh, I'm not sure if we do for the kid track, but for the adult track, if you want to go further than that this week that I put together. But uh, at 11.15, so in five minutes, you can join me on uh, a Zoom link, and we will uh, chop it up more there. So love you all. Have a great day, uh, and see you soon.